Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every Tuesday from the great Garden State of New Jersey. She is the former lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign in Ohio during 2016. She is the one we know as Sharmla Chari. Sharmla, are you there? No, Sharmla. Well, let's try Admiral Ken. No, Admiral Ken. Wow. All right, let me try and fix this. This is why we need a producer, and this is why at the end of the show we're going to have big news coming from uh, coming from our uh, uh, studios here in Washington D.C. Uh, joining me as they do every Tuesday. Let's try this again. Can you hear me now? He the, yeah, I can hear you now. We're having a little bit of a technical problem here on the switchboard, but we're trying to fix that. Uh, Sharma, oh, let's try it again. Sharma, are you there? I'm here. And Admiral here. Ken, are you there? I'm always here for you, Justin. Uh, yeah, I get that. And also joining us, we might as well just finish it out strong. Uh, he's the man that we know as Alan Moore. Alan, how are you? I'm fine. <laughs> so, big well, these news. Are, these are big, big introductions. <laughs> I know. I know. You know what? We're gonna go out. We're gonna go out like a lamb, come in like a lion next week because next week we start a whole brand new version of this show in our brand new digital studios in Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Everybody will be back around the table. And believe it or not, we're going to have video. Oh, my God. You can't believe it. You get to see why I have a face for radio. Anyway, uh, we have a lot to get to. I mean, there is tons of stuff. Uh, We do have breaking news out of Pennsylvania. And I'm just going to say this, Bill Cosby the legendary comedian, actor, and now convicted uh, sex sex offender has been sentenced from three to ten years in a state correctional facility in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. When uh, Bill Cosby applied for bail, bail denied by the judge, and the comedian was taken immediately into state custody to deal with the Department of Corrections. That has happened so far. There's so much other breaking news that we've got to talk about. Let's start with this morning. The President of the United States, in case you did not see it, uh, President Trump was in New York for the United Nations General Assembly meeting, which brings the world leaders together in the General Assembly Hall to address each other. Uh, And, of course, in true President Trump fashion, he delivered what could only be called a President Trump-type speech. Uh, President Trump, in fact, while uh, giving a speech, gave a speech which drew laughter from the audience that he uh, was looking at, and it it was just kind of an odd situation. Usual rhetoric, although the difference between this year's General Assembly speech and uh, and last year's, there was hugs and kisses for the North Korean Kim Jong-un, 
and uh, pretty much screw you to the rest of the world. It was an odd, odd speech. Uh, let me start with you, Charmla. I mean, when, when we look at uh, when we look at that speech today, and the laughter that was given when President Trump addressed him and said, "My administration has done more than any other administration in the history of the world." I mean, is is that sending a good message to? Uh, is that sending a good message to the Americans, and is that just further fighting noise for his base? Well, obviously, it's not a great message, but I worry that we focus on the laughter because it's a good headline and a good punchline, and not actually pay attention to the content of his speech, which was very scary. I mean, aside for his praise for North Korea and kind of, you know, the quote-unquote efforts his administration has made to facilitate denuclearization, you have the fact that the president essentially pulled out of a ton of multilateral pacts that, you know, the U.N. has put in place that the U.S. is a key anchor for, right? If the U.S. is not going to be a good actor and a chief enforcer of a lot of these pacts, then what motivation do a lot of other countries have to you know to stay within the global order and to to govern within sort of the the structures and the and the governance that the UN has put in place. Furthermore, he also talked about cutting significant foreign aid to a lot of countries, right? This is another scary, scary idea that the president has. Remember we have a president who is obsessed with the idea of money and the idea that the U.S. is being snookered by the rest of the world and paying for all these programs and, you know, foreign aid and giving all these foreign aid payments and defense payments um, to which the U.S. receives no benefit, which is, you know, again, we've talked about it on the show multiple times. That's patently false. But the fact that the, that the president reaffirmed his commitment to, to that mentality and said, look, you know, you saw that the U.S. has already pulled out uh, of all foreign aid to assist Palestinian refugees and, you know, has pretty much cut off a ton of foreign aid to Palestine and is now saying, oh, well, we're only going to provide foreign aid to our friends. How does the president define our friends? Does he define North Korea as a friend? He was also on stage president praising Iranian President Rouhani, which, you know, I'm sure will come as a, a surprise to some Republic, of his Republican and we're, colleagues. And we're going to talk about and we're going to get to that in a second. Yeah, so we're I, think that, that I think that, you know, the, the laughter is not great, but we should be really thinking about the content of his speech and the implication that it has for the U.S.'s place in the global world order, because it's very clear that President Trump is not committed to the framework that was established when the U.N. was established. Alan Moore, let, let's talk about uh, his comments on North Korea pretty much came out and, and said, quote, uh, Kim Jong-un thanked the, uh, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, quote, for his courage and the steps he has taken regarding the relationship with South Korea and the U.S. Uh, is, is this just presidential rhetoric or is he truly not comprehending the intelligence that everybody apparently in the Western Hemisphere knows is that they've done really nothing to stop their nuclear program that he's playing us again. Well, with this president, there's there's always a couple of a couple of things to wonder about, um, and it's hard to come up with a clear answer. One, how much does he really know? 
and generally he doesn't tend to know everything that's available, everything he could know, everything that many of us know because we read the newspapers and read various commentators. Plus, he doesn't tend to spend a lot of time with, with the intelligence folks. So he's always operating with, with a shortage of information. Having said that, he's also always operating uh, using his own strategy for how to maneuver and manipulate. And um, uh, he's, I'm not saying he's always right, but I, I will say he's not always wrong. So what, what I think he's trying to do in this case is he's, he's, he's well aware that not a lot of progress has been made on the one hand, and he's trying to, he's trying to manipulate uh, Kim Jong-un. It was just a year ago that he was calling him Little Rocket Man, um, and now he's uh, congratulating him on courage and steps he's taken. And, and, and we all believe that there hasn't been enormous courage, hasn't been a lot of steps. Having said that, the, the, the North Korean situation is a lot tamer and more stable today than it was a year ago. And, and you know, he wants credit. He, the president wants credit for that. He wants to, to, to stroke uh, uh, Kim for, right. for some of that. It's a, right. it's a risky business. But let me also say that in addition to, uh, you know, that, that, that commentary um, also – express gratitude to the leaders of South Korea, Japan, and China. That's rare for this president and noteworthy that, you know, he's got a little bit broader view that somehow or other he's, he's, he's comprehending or willing to say the words um, that these other partners matter in the region. So, you know, I, I don't, (laughs) I don't. I didn't see it as a disaster. There, there were a number. There were elements of the speech that I that I did not agree with, obviously. But there were other right. things, other places where I thought he showed a little more uh, measured balance than he has a, <laughs> has had in the past. So I was expecting a more provocative, more challenging speech than than he actually gave. I think it is worth noting uh, that when we were talking about what he t- talked about, how he's had this highly productive two years. He more than any other president in history. We all laugh. So there was some chuckling in the room, apparently, when he said it. He heard the chuckling, and then he said, hey, no, really, it's true, at which point people started started laughing in, in, in a larger way. Um, so, you know, how much hey, he gets well, Alan, that? No, hold on. Hold on. Let, me, let me touch on. Alan, let me touch on that real quick. Is, is, is that a sign that we that really that – President Trump has lost credibility in the international community. You know, he, he did that. He did that a year and a half ago. So, so what he's trying to do now is regain some credibility, better explain himself. He said some highly complimentary things about the United Nations, about the people right. in that room. He, that was absent. A year ago, where he was feeling his sea legs, using U.S. political instincts to go before right. an international audience, and it didn't go over very well. And I think he became aware of that that that, that he's realizing he's got to have a more nuanced message, right. a little more complex. Mask Let me go to some of his more provocative stuff in in, in you know with, with right. some velvet gloves. 
when you go to Admiral Ken, Admiral Ken, he pretty much did an international victory lap when it came to ISIS, pretty much saying that, you know, but for him and his administration, ISIS would be pretty much tearing up the Middle East. Uh, that got questionable reviews, but the, the big one that came out was the situation with Iran. Uh, was President Trump's speech meant as a egging on Iran to go elsewhere and, and, and seek solace? Was it a, a, a message to bully Iran? Iran, for all intents and purposes, has been, I'm not saying they're perfect, but has been largely sticking with the, uh, the joint agreement that was come up with that the U.S. pulled out. What good comes of poking Rouhani and the Iranian bear at this point, particularly with ongoing tensions in the Middle East? Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's safe to say that uh, the, the other thing that, that the president has shown a proclivity for is viewing um, whatever the subject might be through his own lens. Um, time and time again, um, not the least of which is the, uh, the issue of the Russians having uh, uh, fiddled with our elections. The president you know, sees the world through his own lens and sticks, sticks to that, that vision, uh, regardless of what external facts may be made available to him or in some cases pushed down his throat. Um, same thing with, with, with Korea. Uh, Iran, same thing with Iran. So this is just one more episode of that. With regard to, and, and I want to touch on the point that Alan made with regard to his speech uh, at the UN. Um, I think it, it, rather than find a more nuanced way to to message what he 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 wants to do or what he sees, I think the word that we're looking for is truthful, uh, more honest, you know, more more factual. Uh, grasp of, of, of what's going on. And I think because there has heretofore not been that is why he got uh, uh, two, two sets of laughter. Uh, one before the uh, no, not really comment. Uh, the, the, the one before the no really comment and another after that. So um, what yeah. good is there in poking Iran? I, I think quite frankly, um, pretty soon now uh, after some of the other, uh, issues that uh, confront us domestically start to uh, fade into the background as they always do. The president will need something else uh, to to uh, distract what's going on around him more directly. Uh, Dan Lipner, he talks about Iran's bloody agenda. Does does he not have a point when he you know we look at the involvement of the of the central government out of Iran? In the situation in Kurdish Iraq, Syria, uh, we look at the uh, interaction between the Erdogan government and Tehran and Russia and now even China. Uh, does, does President Trump have a reason to be concerned about the growing relationship in Tehran with not just Moscow, Beijing, uh, and uh, Ankara, but also with the continuing hand-in-hand holding in Damascus? Well, I mean, the real question is, what is his goal? The, the, I just happened to catch uh, this morning uh, a, a, one of my non-typical news sources, Al Jazeera, and I caught something that has not been widely reported in American press, that 
all of the other signatories to the Iran agreement are looking for a way to circumvent the United States' sanctions. Uh, and that included all of the EU countries, Russia and China. That's not an insignificant thing. And if the goal is denuclearization or avoiding Iran becoming a nuclear power, uh, the pulling out of the, the agreement, which now seemingly, if the reporting is true, hurts the United States, has nominal effect on Iran, and alienates us from all of our allies. And as we've all mentioned previously on the, on the show, um, and, and uh, Admiral Ken most recently, that why should you trust us along the way? And along that same thought, the, which leads to the, the hand-holding with North Korea and the, with all of the information we know about North Korea being a very bloody regime, the normalization that the Kim family has sought for decades, Trump has given them with no cost to them. And in effect, he solidified them as a nuclear state. It's not clear that the South Koreans, for their bargaining, are going to have the nuclear question be what restrains anything going forward with North Korea. So overall, the president, for all of these issues, and to have laughter literally in his face from the global community, it's not good. And with now some real evidence that things are not going to work out in the future. Sharmila, are we when when talking about migration, President Trump uh, pointed out the human crisis in Venezuela, but basically came out and said that the U.S. would no longer participate in of UN migration pact or support any sort of joint UN migration policies. Should we be concerned that the president's starting to give some telegraphing signs that there's a possibility we could pull out of the U.N. completely? Well, I don't think that we're at that point yet, but I absolutely agree with you that, you know, the fact that the president is outright rejecting so many of the baseline tenets, the founding tenets of the U.N., is incredibly concerning, right? He is pulling out of these migration pacts. He's reasserting U.S. sovereignty kind of without understanding that U.S. sovereignty is protected. U.S. national security interests are protected by being part of a collective. Um, so, and, you know, with respect to, the you know, pulling out of the migration pact, I don't think that that's, you know, completely out of left field for anyone who's followed this president or his views about migration or his policies towards migrants and refugees coming to the U.S. So um, while that's not surprising in and of itself, I, I do, I don't think that the president, you know, would make such a drastic move immediately, but I do agree with you that, um, you know, he is, he's undermining the case for the U.S. to be a member of the U.N., in, in, certainly in the medium to long term. Admiral Ken, is that something Americans should be concerned about? Uh, I think so, absolutely. Uh, we, you know, we have spent, you know, in the in the days, weeks, and months and years since since World War II, uh, building up these agreements, these these security pacts, 
And it's almost as if the president thinks that we're the only superpower in the world and that we can maintain our security by ourselves without any kind of agreements with anyone else. And that's, you know, again, that, that flies in the face of, of just uh, of the facts that are on the table. That's just not true. It, like it's also just not true that we defeated ISIS all on our own. That's not true either. But, but Alan Moore, the, the, the increase of the dog whistles, which are quickly becoming obvious whistles, uh, of this president's dislike for a globalized coalition of governance. Uh, he talked about, you know, each one of you guys should love your country as much as we love ours. And each one of your countries said to have a patriot and you guys should govern your own selves instead of this one for all and all for one crap. And, and of course, the president did not say that. I am reading between the lines, dog whistle-esque. But, Alan Moore, is this more and more becoming a reality rather than a stump speech for Trump? Well, I don't know. As I say, I, I, we'll have to see what some of these other leaders say. I, I'm listening to our conversation here, um, wanting to take issue with this comment, that comment. I, I, I have to take issue with what Dan said about Korea. I'm not a fan of how this president has played the, his Korea hand on the one hand. On the other hand, when, when, when Dan says we got absolutely nothing and we gave them everything they want is complete and total nonsense, which we can go into if you want. And then when he said, among other things, we gave, we, we gave them status as a nuclear state in perpetuity, uh, I think the jury's out on that one. And uh, anyway, so I, I think we, we have to be careful. Well, hold on, hold on, Alan, 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 slamming. Alan, I don't want to go too deep down this road, but uh, to bring up the issue of giving the North Koreans what they wanted, I mean, arguably, the, you know, want the, the argument could be made that, look, uh, Kim Jong-un wanted face-to-face, high-visibility meet-and-greet, handshake, photo ops, hugs around. With the president, he got it. He want when he doesn't want it, he shuns everybody. He comes to New York and says, "Hey, you know what? Yeah, I do want a summit." And the president literally says, "Oh yeah, would love to meet with you." Yet, look, look for the Alan, hold on, hold on. Most intelligence agencies are reporting that they have not stopped. The manufacturing, they don't have to test anything. They have the weapons. They don't have to do missile tests. They work. Is South, is North Korea, what is North Korea giving up? So <laughs> this, is, this is our point, right? So this is, this, is, this is Alan's point. They paused everything. We felt like we were on the verge a year ago of conflict in that region they have paused they have talked some talk not great talk not followed up as we've said critically regularly with the kind of careful exchange of documents rules understandings etc they have disassembled some other facilities they have they have 
they have released a few hostages. They have returned some remains. They have had meetings, not just with us, with the Chinese, with the South Koreans. Those are good things. Did we get enough in return? That's the question. But to suggest that we got nothing and they got everything they want, it's just nonsense. We're not done with this. We are not done. And we'll, you know, there's a, we, we went it kind of ass backwards, but, but it's not like nothing has happened that's positive. Do I like the way it unfolded? No. But to simply say, we got nothing, they got everything, they're a nuclear state in perpetuity, is <laughs> just nonsense. You can't say that yet. Maybe a year from now, maybe two years, five years, we'll say, holy crap, look what happened. But, you know, it, we can't say that yet. That's all. That, that was Ken. my only point. Admiral so, Ken. So, so, so taking President Trump at his word in that he wants, he wants to uh, have a nuclear-free North Korea and looking at how this process – if you want to call it that, and, and I, I'm, I'm at, at a loss for another description, but it's something less than a process as far as I'm concerned, um, has unfolded. I am, Alan, I love you, but I'm, 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 I'm going to painfully agree with Dan on this one. We, we, we really haven't gotten anything. Uh, the, 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 uh, the North Koreans still have got the nuke. Um, yeah, so what, they stopped testing it, but quite frankly, um, they, they don't have to test it. They know it works. And uh, quite frankly, if you go back to those heady days in, in the uh, uh, right after President Trump came in office and there was the exchange of dialogue and insults uh, between us and the North Koreans, uh, we, the U.S., through the President Trump, we started that. This was us creating, creating an issue that the president can turn around and say, okay, I, I stopped it and I solved it. I remember the days right after the, uh, the, uh, the day or two after the summit, he came out, I've solved the problem of, a, of, a, of a nuclear weapons in North Korea, and nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing. So, right. so don't attribute to me the Trump words. All I'm saying is we're not done. Yes, the president constantly overstates what's been achieved, but we're not done. Um, right. The Secretary of State, all these other heads of state are ha- having these meetings where it's one of the few things where we – we appear to have some possibly positive interactions with Japan, China, and South Korea. We're not in charge. We're not calling wait, all the wait, shots. Wait, wait, wait. We, we're, we're grotesquely, we're we're having grotesquely exaggerating that, that, what we've achieved, but we're not done. So well, we're not having interactions so, that pisses off the Chinese and the Japanese. That's a positive thing. That, well, that, that should that, be oh, on, on, diff, on different issues all the time, absolutely. Um, but but to, 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 you guys are forgetting how, how tense everything was a year ago. No, I'm not. I, I'm I, 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 having, having been to the Korean Peninsula five times in uniform, I am absolutely not forgetting how tense it was. But I am also not forgetting the fact who made it tense. And the, and the fact of the matter is when you – and, Alan, I'm not attributing the president's words to you. I am holding the president to his word. The problem has not been solved. We've basically given them everything, and we have gotten nothing. Wow. And hold on. Let me go to Sharmila. Sharmila, you know, I was talking to uh, friends of mine in the foreign policy space uh, today, and one of them made a very interesting comment. He said that every time 
Donald Trump addresses the General Assembly of the UN, China looks so much better in the eyes of the global economy that everybody wants to go to work with China and not with the U.S. Is there some validity to that? Well, I think that I think there is validity to that, not just in terms of an economic power, but also as sort of the it, it's hard to describe the U.S.'s former role, but sort of as just the the world's unifying power, right? At a time when the U.S. policy is seemingly incoherent to the rest of the world, you know, and and I think that you know because of the Trump presidency, you know, they're seeing how how subject the U.S. is to the kind of quote-unquote whims of democracy, right? Previous Republican and Democratic administrations used to keep a baseline of, of policies, and now this president has veered away from all of them. And suddenly, I think it, it becomes more obvious to the world than ever before that the U.S. might not be as stable of a partner as, pre, as previously believed, whereas, you know, a country like China, which has been ruled by the same kind of political philosophy for the last 100 years, is suddenly looking like a more steady partner because they know that even as administrations change or regimes change or premiers change, the underlying philosophy, the underlying interests of the Chinese government will stay steady. They're not subject to kind of the, the populist whims of the Chinese population. So I do think that there's validity to, to your friend's statement. And I think that, you know, as the U.S. policy continues to be more and more erratic under this president, that statement's only going to be underlined more and more. Dan Lipner, I want to pose the same question to you. Every time Trump shows in front of the GA, we become less and less of the superpower, and China starts to take our place. Is that valid? I'm going to simply answer that question with a question to everyone around the table. Can anyone explain, as defined by Donald Trump, let me be clear, as defined by Donald Trump, what the U.S. interest is as seen by the rest of the world? I'm going to argue the answer is no, other than the interest is in whatever makes Donald Trump feel good at the moment. And note the word feel good, not actually good for Donald Trump, but just feel good in the moment. If anyone can give me an answer to that, I will gladly concede the point. But I cannot define a U.S. interest that Donald Trump has consistently conveyed to the global community. See, I, I somewhat disagree with Dan. Go ahead, Sharmila, go ahead. Well, I think to what I said before, I think that, it, and it, to Dan's point, it's not always coherent, but I do think that President Trump's overriding interest is money. He sees everything in terms of money, in terms of, you know, is the U.S. spending money foolishly or are they saving money or do they have more money than the next country, right? That, I think that goes through his obsession with trade deficits and defense spending and foreign aid. You see the president's constant theme is, is the U.S. being, you know, does the U.S. have more money than, than other countries? Because that's what, what makes us more powerful. His issue with China and Mexico is that we run a trade deficit with them, which to him means that, you know, they are making money at the U.S.'s expense. You know, again, you see with, with, uh, with NATO, he feels that other, other member states are not contributing their fair share, which means the U.S. is a sucker for supporting them when they're not supporting us. So I think that even though it's not always explained in a concrete philosophy, I do think money is really the president's baseline for understanding the U.S.'s place in the world. Go ahead. Uh, Alan Moore, you want to make a comment? 
So, so I, I'm I'm certainly agreeing with with Dan that it's awfully hard to put a finger on uh, what what this administ what what this president prioritizes and how he sees things, and B how America sees things because it's two different things, and we know for a fact that U.S. diplomats go overseas. Um, sort of after the president has visited a place or made a comment or made a speech or, or pushed an action, um, and they go around sort of like the, uh, the, 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 the guys cleaning up after the circus uh, when the elephants walk through, cleaning up the stuff that got left behind and try to explain, yeah, 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 yeah. it's not as bad as you think for this reason and that reason and so on. It is certainly clear that that uh, that the president cares a lot about himself. He's he's worrying about his legacy, so he feels like even at the United Nations, it's appropriate to try to go and and and, and talk about how great he's doing, um, which is bizarre. When he said, when my my take on it was when he said, "No, hey, really," and people laughed. They were laughing because they've come to expect this from him. Not just that it was ridiculous on its face, but because because he's kind of ridiculous because he tends to do that kind of stuff. But having said all of that, when you talk about people turn away from America and turn towards China, that's two different things. The Europeans we know have come to realize and they've said it and they've said it publicly. Hey, folks, we can't rely uh, on on American leadership uh, right now. We need to think about some other constructs some other ways. Um, that's not all bad, frankly, um, but that doesn't mean they turn to China. The people who turn to China uh, are trading partners and people in desperate need where China shows a willingness to invest billions of dollars in infrastructure. China has been investing money all over Africa now for for a, at least 20 years, roads and, and right. infrastructure, right. partly in order to get to gain access to uh, to raw materials that right. that are uh, available there that, that China doesn't have. So you but agree, comes, so you, Alan? You you're, but, are but you agree? But when it comes to hang on, when it comes to the country that they look to their money in to keep it safe, that's America. All right, Admiral, can you agree? Yeah, I do. For now. Okay, that works. <laughs> we're gonna take a quick. We're gonna let that be the last word. Ideas out there. Yeah, we're gonna let that be the last word. Hey, when we come back, we're gonna talk about the ongoing telenovela that is the Department of Justice and the situation with Assistant Attorney or Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Uh, is he in a job? Does he not have a job? Why is this turning into reality TV show? This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in three minutes. Call it. Stand by. We'll be right back.
backroom politics. And we're back with the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Admiral Ken Carrot, I'm the Honorable Alan Moore, Sharma Chari, and Dan Littner Esquire. Uh, let's talk about the ongoing drama happening down at the Robert Kennedy Building, otherwise known as Department of Justice Headquarters, here in Washington, D.C. Basically, we are dealing with reality TV. We are dealing with a telenovela that we have never seen or that we have not seen in years, and it's being run by and choreographed by a reality TV show star. Here's what's happening. Uh, Last week, uh, confusion began with uh, Deputy Attorney General Ron Rosenstein. uh, Began last week when he and Chief of Staff John Kelly met at the White House last Friday, hours after a New York Times article came out where it basically reported uh, Rod Rosenstein had said that he should wire people up to tape record the conversations with the president to prove that they might have to invoke the 25th Amendment, which is basically the president is unfit for office. We're going to remove him at the consent of a majority of the cabinet. Uh, this sent shockwaves. Rod Rosenstein came out and made an apparent backwalk on that, but to that point, it did not do well. That led to speculation over the weekend on whether or not Rod Rosenstein was going to have a job when he showed up on Monday. Well, yesterday, as the president was going up to New York to address the General Assembly and have a quiet night at Trump Plaza, Rod Rosenstein was summoned to the White House yet again to have another meeting with John Kelly. And and apparently the White House has announced that they're going to postpone decisions on Rod Rosenstein until next Thursday. When asked about it on Geraldo Rivera's podcast, like ours, uh, although I think ours is better, when asked about it on, on Geraldo Rivera's show over the weekend, he the president basically said that they're looking at all options and he hasn't made a decision. Well, apparently a decision will come down on Thursday. This is sent Washington leadership into a tailspin tizzy. Uh, the situation it continues to become more and more uh, perilous. Rod Rosenstein has, if depending on what media source you're listening to, has either trenched himself in and saying, hell no, I won't go, others saying that he is fully prepared to offer his resignation, which brings in the question, who then protects the Mueller investigation. Uh, let me start with you, Sharmila. Uh, Sharmila, the, everybody knows that the role of Rod Rosenstein, on top of the fact that he is the number two highest-ranking law enforcement official in the country, uh, his role basically is to provide overhead coverage for the Mueller uh, uh, the Mueller investigation. How does the Mueller investigation come into jeopardy if, in fact, Mueller, I mean, if, in fact, Rosenstein either retires or retires, resigns, or is fired? Well, the prime antagonist of the Mueller investigation, if, um, if Rosenstein is pushed out of the Justice Department, is Noel Francisco, who is currently the Solicitor General, 
and will then step into the shoes of acting attorney general in terms of overviewing or supervising uh, the Mueller investigation. So, you know, many media outlets have reported that Francisco is much more of a Trump loyalist, that he has long been skeptical of the Mueller investigation and believes that this is a partisan, you know, quote-unquote witch hunt to get the president and to undermine his authority and to push him out of office unfairly or to impugn him unfairly. And so the biggest threat to the investigation is that if Mr. Francisco is put in charge of the investigation, that he will terminate it, that he will say, you know, the investigation has not produced any significant evidence against the president and therefore should be wrapped up before the investigation has a chance to, and Robert Mueller can independently say that the investigation has concluded. So that right now is, is the biggest threat to the investigation, and that's why the reason why so many people are watching with bated breath what's about to happen to Rod Rosenstein. Uh, Admiral Ken, how, how dangerous a game are we playing here when it comes to the politicalization, basically, of the Department of Justice? You've got a, an attorney general in Jeff Sessions that, for all intents and purposes, is a dead man walking in the eyes of the president. You've got Rod Rosenstein, who's pretty much walking a tightrope, and the only thing keeping him in play seems to be the Mueller, uh, the, the, the Mueller investigation. If they do get rid of Mueller, and they do put in somebody like the Solicitor General uh, Francisco, uh, does sacking Mueller or closing down or descoping the Mueller investigation pose a problem to the Trump administration? Admiral Ken. Sorry, I uh, was muted. Yeah, I think it does. Um, the, um, the, the problem is now that the Solicitor General, uh, I think, would be uh, suspected of being aligned with the president, and we know the president thinks the, uh, the Mueller investigation is a witch hunt. Um, so I think that you know, the, the removal of, of Rod Rosenstein from um, the, the, the chessboard, if you will, creates some some big issues regarding one finding out uh, how much has really gone on how much does Mueller know uh, what would happen to the investigation if Mueller was was fired you know does you know does does it roll to someone else or does that does everything get uh, go to a burn barrel or what um, I think it, it needs to be said I find it ironic that the New York Times the failing New York Times um, that has uh, been much aligned with being the um, the uh, uh, producer, big producer of fake news, is now being taken seriously by the Trump administration and those who support it. Uh, I, I just I can't I can't help but shake my head at the irony of that situation. <laughs> Dan, Dan Lipner, does does putting in. Uh, the, the Solicitor General as the new Deputy Attorney General. Uh, could this be a situation where, much like we saw with his appointment to the Southern District of New York, you may have somebody who's really fond of you, but once you get into the office and your staff starts advising you, is this an automatic slam dunk that out goes Mueller if out goes Rosenstein? No, it's not a slam dunk, and I have to uh, challenge something that Ken said, that the uh, 
uh, president just says this is a winch, uh, believes that this is a witch hunt. Specifically, the president says that this is a witch hunt. Whether or not he believes it, that's a different question. Now, he might be saying that while stirring his cauldron, but nonetheless, what he says and what he believes and what is true might all be different things. Um, so, no, I mean, in an ideal world, lawyers, um, especially when elevated to these positions of importance, uh, actually take the law seriously. Um, unfortunately, as we all know, not all lawyers do that, but uh, Noel Francisco could very well rise to the occasion, and he could see history uh, looking down at him and wondering exactly how he wants to be recorded in history, whether or not he wants to be the Robert Bork who stands, who actually takes uh, Nixon's order to, uh, to, to fire uh, Archibald Cox, or whether or not he sees history differently and would, and would prefer to uh, let Mueller finish his investigation. It's a real question. Um, and I don't think we know enough about the character of this particular person to, to know just yet. I mean, Alan Moore, I mean, let's look at this point blank. Does getting rid of Rosenstein and getting rid of Mueller fix the Trump problem? No, it doesn't fix it in a couple of ways. One, um, I'll remind everybody that 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 some of the uh, some of his legal problems now, uh, Michael Cohen, uh, that case is not a, a part of Mueller anymore. That's in the Southern District of New York. That's up to a U.S. US attorney up there in, uh, in 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 New York. Mueller basically handed over every all the information. So that one would go on without it. it, it, it if Mueller were to be let go, and I don't expect him to be let go, no matter what happens to Rosenstein. Let me make that clear. Um, it, the, the timing is just totally wrong. The politics is grotesque. The Republicans in in uh, uh, in the Senate, um, who are the ones who matter right now uh, more than than the House ones, the House guys, um, will go ballistic. Um, some of the people that he talks to, that he listens to, at least to some degree, every now and then, are all going to counsel him to not do that. That that it, it won't wash with the, the bigger, broader public. Mueller's got, uh, has got a number of conv- convictions and, and plea deals with guys that were close to the president. And if, if the president breaks up the Mueller investigation, it makes it look like he's trying to, to, uh, to, to hide something, A. B, if they were to get rid of Mueller, then the question would be, so does it, does it, dissolve or does does the new acting uh, deputy attorney general um, appoint someone else we don't know the answer to that and I think when he starts looking at that I'm sure that he's thought about it some he realizes I may not like Mueller I may think that that the charter was too broad and they moved in this way and that way and I question this and I question that Um, but this is the lesser of, of evils at this point leave it alone Leave it alone. Leave it alone. Um, I don't think Rosenstein is going to go right now either. It, it's very awkward for the president. I mean, but, but the problem is, think about this. If what Rosenstein apparently said early on, early on, on the heels of him emerging, and then the president taking a memo that Rosenstein wrote, it was critical of the way Comey handled uh, 
uh, his role um, at the late, late, late in the election season, ways that were enormously helpful to to to, to now President Trump. Let's acknowledge, um, and the president just grabbed onto that and said, "Here's my reason. This is why. This is why. This is the rationale for firing Comey." And Rosenstein was flabbergasted at that. Was like, well, "Wait a no." No, no, you can't do that. And he was he was horrified, mortified, um, and 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 kind of stuck. So then he starts hearing about the president. He's in some meetings with the president. There's got to be some talk. Is this guy stable? How dangerous is he, et cetera? And somewhere along the way, then Rosenstein makes some comments about, right. you know, maybe we got to go in there with a wire. There's an argument about whether he was quote serious in his discussion or joking about it. The, and, and I don't know the answer to that, but but you know John Kelly called the president an idiot and Matt, allegedly, and the and, and Mattis allegedly said it was like dealing with a fourth grader. I mean, there's a history of some people close to the president who said some pretty aggressive things, right? And and the president has kind of thought, well, I can't fire everybody in the in the United States of America, and 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 whatever Rosenstein said back then. What he says now is, you know, no, it didn't go down that way. And I don't believe the 25th Amendment um, is in any way uh, an appropriate thing to think about with regard to uh, to this president. So it 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 creates problems for the president right. if he lets Ro- Rosenstein right. go. If Mueller goes in a way, that's an even bigger problem. And I just don't think either one is going to happen now. Next year? No. January, February, I think Sessions will be gone, Rosenstein will be gone. Um, maybe we'll have had a final report, hopefully, right. from Mueller. Right. But but for now, uh, with the elections, with the controversy, I mean, right. when you get when you get Sean Hannity publicly saying, "Don't touch this," yeah. um, <laughs> it's it's fascinating, and you got to wonder who is the source of all of this stuff, and what are the objectives of the person who made this information available. And, I have and a that's a, a whole other interesting question. Admiral Ken, go ahead. Who, who, who is the source? Andrew McCabe. Um, I think he's the source of this. And what, what is the rationale? Well, he gets people who did not cover for him smoked, and at the same time, he causes a bigger constitutional crisis than we've got on our hands already. So he's the, he's the top. He's the prime candidate. No question about that. So here's the question: Is Axios uh, Sharmila has been reporting that those close to the president have wanted Rosenstein to go? In fact, they reported that there is a statement that is ready to go out of the box from Jeff Sessions that Rod Rosenstein has served this department with dedication and skill for twenty year, twenty eight years. Blah blah blah. Uh, it almost seems like everybody in Washington, or at least everybody at DOJ and the West Wing, have come have concluded that this is a done deal. It's just a matter of when. The, should that give pause to not only uh, Mueller but to Congress? I think Sorry, that. Yeah, go ahead. Um. I think the, that the idea that Rosenstein, um, you know, it is maybe less so, it 
prior to prior to this past Saturday or whenever the New York Times article came out, uh, the idea that Rosenstein was a dead man walking was less ingrained in people's heads than the idea that the Attorney General Jeff Sessions was, you know, not long for his post. But I think that, you know, as, as you all were just talking, I was thinking that not only should Rosenstein and potentially Jeff Sessions firing give Congress a lot of pause, the people who really need to think carefully are congressional Democrats. If the president fires one or both of these gentlemen before the midterm elections, and if that causes, you know, a blue wave or, you know, helps contribute to a blue wave that suddenly puts Democrats in power of one or both houses, I actually wonder if they're going to have less leverage than had the Republicans stayed in charge, because suddenly if there is no attorney general or deputy attorney general, suddenly you have a solicitor general who is the acting attorney general who is incredibly partisan and can do a lot of damage and hamper a lot of investigations. And the president may not want to appoint another person to fill in the role of attorney general because he knows that he's going to face an uphill confirmation battle. He may choose to, instead of trying to find a compromise candidate that could be confirmed, he may choose to simply allow, you know, Noel Francisco to stay on as acting attorney general and actually enact his own agenda. So I think that, um, that, you know, the members of Congress and especially congressional Democrats should be very worried because this is actually a knife edge situation that they're in right now. Dan Lipner, I mean, theoretically, if they get rid of Rod Rosenstein and they get, and they get rid of the Mueller, the, the Mueller investigation and fire Mueller, I've been told by some inside the Justice Department that don't necessarily think that that's the end of the investigations going on, that there is almost a uh, an Armageddon clause that says that there are certain state attorneys general and certain uh, state cases that could be brought against the players that they're investigating. If, in fact, that's true, is that just another reason why the White House would be ill-advised getting rid of Robert Mueller and closing down this investigation to full completion? Uh, Well, I, I, I will actually coin the phrase, right now that I believe there is a, a Mueller investigation dead man switch that uh, could Mueller be removed prior to the conclusion of the investigation. I am certain other things will happen almost instantaneously. Some of which include a, a truck with all the documentations uh, pulling right up to the New York times and dropping it off on the front porch uh, as well as multiple state attorneys general, uh, of which several are Democrats in the states that matter, including New York and Pennsylvania. I'm sure there are others. And there are also U.S. attorneys that are currently on the job that, in spite of their boss being a Republican, have a future that they would like to see uh, go further than this administration. So, I am comfortable saying that even if the worst case happens, that uh, Mueller gets fired or removed before the investigation comes to its natural conclusion, there are other things that will happen almost certainly. And I'm almost certain that the 
this White House, including the crack legal team uh, that the president has surrounded himself with, nothing but the best, um, is completely unprepared for that possibility. That said, I would still prefer it doesn't happen. Right. I mean, Sharma, I mean, that that's a reality. I mean, coining Diane's phrase, the Mueller dead man switch, if he lets his finger off the button, do we expect to see truckloads showing up at the district attorney's office in Manhattan and the attorney general's office in Albany? Does New York become, in fact, the head of this investigation instead of Mueller? That's a really interesting question, and I happened to be at a fundraiser last night with Tish James, who is running for New York Attorney General, and who made it quite clear that she you know, would fully support any investigations into the Trump Organization and sort of Trump's business practices uh, while, you know, if, if and when she, she uh, prevailed in her election. So I do think that Yes, you, you know, if if the Mueller investigation is ended, you will see a lot of a lot more frenzied activity here and in Albany to you know to utilize what whatever investigation was shared with them by the Mueller team or you know, teams, as it were, and to truly build a strong case against against the president. Now, whether or not the president can be indicted or subpoenaed you know, to gather more information on those investigations is going to then be the most salient question because, right, you know, part of the debate about Judge Kavanaugh that, you know, I'm sure we're going to have in the next segment of our show is his belief that, you know, the presidential, that the office of the president should be immune from such investigations while the president is in office because it is an undue distraction. Um, You know, with the reason the Mueller investigation, you know, is somewhat, siloed from that that um from that protection is because the it's because it's an investigation looking into whether or not the president became the president through circumspect means and whether or not he abused his power while president however you're going to have a much different case if you know if the burden now is shifted to the new york attorneys general who will be looking at crimes that potentially that the president or his company may have committed prior to his actual presidency. But Alan Moore, isn't this a very slippery slope that anytime an opposition decides that they don't feel they're getting their way, that they can just revert back and go, Oh, well, the state attorney general has jurisdiction. We'll just go, we'll just go to Albany and fix that. Is that a slippery slope we're playing with? Well, it, it's not. A, it, 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 this is this is this is sort of old news, right? This is this is how the, the how the system works, and the the, the feds have jurisdiction over federal uh, federal statutes, and the states have jurisdiction over state statutes. What was interesting in this particular instance was when people talked about about Manafort, for example. The thought was, well, if he's if if he's pardoned and and his penalties are somehow removed, he's got a lot of exposure in the states where he has resided in Virginia. Uh, and and in New York, um, so you know, don't think that, Mr. President, that you can just sort of fix this problem with the Manafort problem with with a with a pardon, uh, if you will. Um, having said that, the state of New York is not going to be looking at everything that Mueller can look at. Mueller's looking at the role of the Russians, and as we know, 
uh, in the course of it, he stumbled onto some stuff about Flynn and stumbled on stuff about Manafort that were federal crimes that 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 he he set in motion to prosecute. He got a plea deal early on with Flynn. Uh, he got convictions with Manafort and then a plea deal um, w- w- with Manafort. Um, and and the the state is not going to substitute uh, for Mueller when it comes to uh, federal charges. The Southern District of New York, on the other hand, it can look at uh, at federal charges. It just is looking at stuff relating to to Michael Cohen that don't have to do um, with the federal charges that were at the core of the Mueller investigation. I wanted to say one thing about what what Dan said about about the new. About the Solicitor General. First of all, I don't know this guy. I know he did some legal work for the president. Being Solicitor General is not just an everyday, you know. Oh yeah, just uh, you know, some some political hack. Um, it's a big time job. Huge staff. You were in, in, involved with all of overseeing all of the preparation for arguments in front of the Supreme Court, etc. So these are not guys that that are just uh, you know in the president's pocket. Whatever you say, Mr. President. I thought Dan made a good point about. A guy who comes from that position doesn't necessarily want to be fingered as the person who who took some action that was extraordinarily controversial, created great upheaval, perhaps even led to impeachment hearings in the House if if the, if the House uh, uh, turns Democrat. But but in in, in 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 saying that, I think Dan had a good point. He 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 invoked the name of Robert Bork, and and I just thought that in fairness to Robert Bork. Robert Bork was the was the Solicitor General in the next administration when Elliot Richardson, who had hired Archibald Cox to run the Watergate investigation, was ordered by President Nixon to fire Cox. He was working too hard to get access to the controversial White House tapes. Richardson was ordered to do it. He said, I can't do it. I, I brought Archibald Cox in, old friend of mine, etc. I'd have to resign. Too bad. See you around. The number two was Bill Ruckelshaus, who said, in effect, don't look at me. I'm following Richardson out the door, which was in some ways very unfortunate. The next guy in the row was, was Bork saying, don't leave me hang, uh, uh, with, with, with this pile of crap. Um, and, and Richardson and Ruckelshaus and their senior people said, you have to stay and do this. We can't break up the total de- the, the department. And then and then Bork said, well, maybe I'll do the firing and then I'll resign. They said, no, no, the department needs continuity. They like people like you. They trust you. And they had to persuade Bork to do it. This wasn't, he wasn't, you know, this wasn't his plan. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want anything to do with it, but he did it. And then <laughs> years later, when he was a nominee for the court, just got hammered and pilloried for being the guy that fired Archibald Cox. So if, 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 back to Dan's point, if the current solicitor general were looking at all of that saying, there's no way I could keep clean hands, even if I'm just doing my duty, um, uh, wh- whatever his loyalties are, um, he, he would not want to, uh, he, he would have to think long and hard about whether he would want to be the guy that, that went ahead and just, fired Mueller, particularly, particularly if he wasn't ordered to, as was right. the case with Archibald Cox. Anyway, right. I just wanted yeah. to add that. <laughs> okay. Uh, look, what, one of the things that we have to realize is uh, these are interesting times that we're living in 
here in Washington, D.C. That being said, uh, our producer, who is in an undisclosed location up around Lake George, New York, uh, wanted me to point out the following. She would like to point out, but she's not on the air at this moment, that, uh, in fact, the parachute pool... Sharma was the first to have Rod Rosenstein back on 417. I was the most recent to have him on June 12th. Um, the the parachute pool on Rod Rosenstein, she would like to uh, nullify the Rod Rosenstein bet, saying that uh, technically that win, if it is true, should go to Sharma as the first to pick it. So, no, 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 no. That oh my God! Wait a minute. What? That's like saying yeah. the Nationals. The Nationals are going to win the pennant, and then if they do, you say, "Oh, I'm the first guy who said that." It's not, you know, you you abandoned <laughs> that long ago. You don't. It's not Charmla, who's do you there accept, first. Charmla, do you accept this win? I mean, my ego wants me to accept it, but I do somewhat agree with Alan that that's not really how betting works. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. A it is a tough form of gambling, so I think you know Sharmila should take it while she can. <laughs> I was going to say I'm happy to split the prize money with Justin fifty fifty. Oh, oh my all right. I'll god! Take I'll take that. That works. All right. Uh, that <laughs> being said, hey, Alan, look, out the window. Take, Alan, you have a problem with it? You take it up with our producer. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Um, that being the case, hey, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've actually got a lot to talk about when it comes to this situation with Supreme Court Justice nominee Brett Kavanaugh and the interesting times that he's living in. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. We will be back in three minutes. Stay with us.
is backroom politics. And we are back here for the best political talk show you never heard of. It is backroom politics live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, Sharma Lachari, Ken Carradine, Alan Moore, and Dan Lipner, Esquire. Hey, let's talk about the big 300-pound gorilla in the room, not me. It is the ongoing drama surrounding the Trump nominee for the Supreme Court open seat, Brett Kavanaugh, and the continuing crisis surrounding his nomination and his confirmation process. Uh, last week, it was discovered that uh, it was discovered that there was another accuser of inappropriate behavior by uh, Judge Kavanaugh in a New York in a New Yorker in a New Yorker article by Rowan Farrow. Uh, it was revealed that a second incident happened surrounding Brett Kavanaugh at while he was a student at Yale University. Uh, in an in interesting turn of events, Brett Kavanaugh sat down la- uh, on, on Monday night in a very odd interview and said, I quote, regarding the accusations, and I quote, I, have, I, have never, I had never sexually assaulted anyone, not in high school, not ever. I've always treated women with dignity and respect, I have never sexually assaulted anyone. I was not at the party described. I was not anywhere at any place resembling that in the summer of 1982. The other people alleged to be there don't say anything like that. And the woman who's alleged to be there, who's her friend, says that she doesn't know me and doesn't recall ever being at a party with me in her life. Uh, The situation of he said, she said, continues regarding Brett Kavanaugh and the issue with Dr. Ford and the issue with the new act, the new accuser from, uh, from Yale university. Uh, it is, um, it's an inflamed, it, this is an inflammation of culture wars. There's no question about it. Uh, conservatives and Democrats are both screwed in this situation. Sharmal, let me start with you. How screwed is each side, for lack of a better term, in creating this mess in the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh? Uh, extraordinarily. I'm not sure if there's a better adjective than that. I think that, right, the Republicans have a lot to lose in terms of their already loosening grasp on women, especially college-educated women, women who voted for Trump and now you know, are pretty much disgusted by his behavior and attitudes towards female accusers and now seeing the GOP kind of stand, other than a few notable exceptions, stand so, you know, in mass and in one block uh, against these two women who are accusing Brett Kavanaugh and, you know, standing so firmly behind, behind the judge. Uh, on the other hand, I think you have, the Democrats have created an equally untenable situation not so much in terms of, uh, you know, bringing forth evidence that uh, you know, challenges the integrity or credibility of of a Supreme Court nominee, or you know, bringing forth evidence that you know could credibly sway the votes of their fellow senators. But I think in really in in the way that they t- 
timed the the revelations in the way that they've sort of not been coordinated in their response and, and the way they really kind of lobbed a political grenade in the midst of these confirmations. You know, I think that the one thing the Democrats had going for them since the, you know, since presidents win in November and then going forward was that they kind of had the moral high ground. Uh, they were very justified in their anger at how Judge Garland was treated back in 2016. And they had a bit of righteousness about them in terms of their, you know, demands for full and fulsome hearings on uh, Judge Gorsuch, not Justice Gorsuch, Gorsuch and Judge Kavanaugh. So I think that now that the Democrats have sort of really like badly played their political hand in these confirmations, they've really lost that moral standing that they that they had, you know, against the Republicans in their treatment of Merrick Garland. So I think that the the damage is going to be lasting for both parties in different ways. Admiral Ken, you know, it it strikes me that in the age of Me Too that in particular the fact that the the women voters are not exactly uh, running to the Republican Party at any time, does creating this circus actually just continue to drill a hole in women supporting Republican candidates? Because, I mean, let's call it what it is. This possibly could make Anita Hill look like romper room comparatively. So I, I guess I, I I have to come start out by saying I think that there's that there's uh, a, a pox in both houses here. Um, I've seen uh, people on both sides of the fence just acting purely just just abysmally. Um, you know, they're they're the folks that 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 think Judge Kavanaugh is innocent and. Uh, people like Lindsey Graham, who, who don't want to care, don't care to hear anything uh, that his accuser has to say, um, and vice versa. There are people who've already, you know, decided that Judge Kavanaugh is guilty of sin, and nobody knows all the facts. And and I think the Senate, uh, in trying to do what they think is the right, the Senate Judiciary Committee, in trying to do what they think is the right thing by bringing in uh, an outside person to do the questioning. I think is is basically just done nothing but toss uh, gas on the fire. The truth of the matter is is that Judge Kavanaugh, uh, if if he's innocent, uh, and, and 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 in our country you're believed to be innocent until proven guilty. You know, I I I would if if I were in his place and I was looking to have my name cleared, by all means, I'd say get the FBI, go source this stuff out. If you're gonna if you because if, if you lie to the FBI. Um, Mueller's already shown you what what happens there, but you know if if you want if he wants his name cleared, you know I I think I, I would want to do that. That said, you know what he's assumed innocent until proven until proven guilty. I think that the Democratic Party has done just an absolutely poor job of handling this, and uh, I think have not done what they could have done. Uh, to, to I guess preserve and protect their places as, as, as the advocate uh, of, of people who are oppressed in this country, women, uh, persons of color. But at the same time, this is this a pox in both houses here. And uh, I think you're absolutely right that that if you know if if, 
if this keeps going the way that it's going, this will make the whole Anita Hill um, situation look like uh, a walk in the park. So I want to respond to what Ken just said, because I, I do agree with part of what he said in terms of, you know, there's a pox on both houses and Go both, ahead. both parties have handled, have handled this situation incredibly poorly. But I do want to respond because I was listening to a, a news segment about kind of what Admiral Ken was just saying about, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty in the context of the Me Too movement. And Justin, the discussions you and I have had about, well, what about due process for these men who are accused of misconduct? And I want to make it clear that I think that that analogy is quite flawed because that analogy applies to when someone's life and liberty is on the line, right? When you're about to be convicted of a criminal offense and could actually lose your freedom, that's when the concepts of due process and innocent before, before proven guilty, that's when they come into play because the constitution of this country guarantees you the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness unless you have forfeited them through some action. However, in the case of, you know, the Me Too movements where men in power are being, you know, exposed for, you know, either sexual abuse or, or misconduct in this case, as it may be, you're not, your liberty is not on the line. Your job is on the line. And in this case for Judge Kavanaugh, his promotion is on the line, but he's not entitled to those things. Judge Kavanaugh is not entitled to be a Supreme Court justice just because he happens to be, you know, a jurist with a good pedigree, and he was nominated by the president. Being a Supreme Court justice is a privilege that he will earn if he is confirmed by the Senate. And so I think it's the sense of when I hear the phrases, well, what about innocent and guilty, and what about due process, that to me, you know, and I, I don't think this is Ken's intention, but that to me conveys sort of a sense of entitlement on behalf of these men who, you know, I won't deny, Judge Kavanaugh's worked hard. He's been, a, a, you know, a, a respected jurist in his career, but there's, he's not entitled to the rewards of that. You know, and if something, um, if something comes out that sort of casts a shadow on his integrity or, you know, casts his personality or his achievements in a different light, then that's what, ha- then that's what has to happen. Uh, and I- and, you know, so, sorry, Ken. Um, and I just yeah, want to go ahead. Uh, I, I agree, Sharmila. That was not my intent to suggest that there was any type of entitlement. And I also agree with your perspective in that this is not a legal proceeding in which one's life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is at jeopardy. Uh, I think all I was trying to say. Hold on, hold on. Let me, let me finish my thought. Uh, right. I think what I, was, what I was trying to convey was the fact that this 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 whole situation could have handled been handled much better by both sides and that now now we are we are once again in a situation where the word of a woman um is being um is is being put out there you know and and it's going to have an effect on whether this person's going to be um confirmed or not and all parties involved with this directly are going to be left with mud uh, on their faces, including, unfortunately, uh, the, the the accuser. Well, yeah, but not the same way. No, no, but hold on. But Dan Lipner, let me go to you. I mean, you know, here's there are only legitimately three people who knew what happened in that room, and 
in Maryland back in 1982. Uh, there's only two people that know what happened in that college party at Yale in 1985. The bottom line here is we have now created another circus around a he said, she said, and this has the possibility of destroying many lives in the wake of this. Does, I mean, do the Democrats take some responsibility in this, in the way that they've handled it, and in fact, the way that they've kind of thrown this out there as a political hand grenade in this manner? So uh, there are a couple different parts to this. The first of which is, yes, um, once you step away from politics, the raw facts of the matter is every part of this is icky. Um, as far as the thing, the anonymity of the victims, plural, um, the how this is handled politically, as far as the dropping it at the eleventh hour, all of that is challenging. However, conveniently, and now this is the raw politics of the uh, of the answer, the Republicans have answered everything wrong. And consistently have created sound bites that suggest that they've answered everything wrong. So while the short-term item that is, as Kenneth said, is correct, this is a box on all of our houses, the stuff that's going to resonate throughout time is going to be the Republican running for Congress. I believe it's actually a congressman who said, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, you know, had an accusation that Abraham Lincoln felt her up. Okay. That's already out there. Uh, the number of Republicans in the Senate that have already said, regardless of what they hear, they believe Judge Kavanaugh is a good man. He never would have said any, done anything wrong. Uh, Orrin Hatch, it, without knowing any additional young woman, is clearly just confused. None of this is good, and it prompted, as it should have, the victims of other forms of sexual abuse to come out and explain why they waited so long to share their stories of how they've been victimized in the past, some of whom never actually reported. So the Republican Party managed to play directly into the hands of the narrative of the, of the Me Too movement, which is unfortunately all too true that, yeah, people don't take you seriously or more specifically, do not take women seriously when these accusations are made, and that's why they remain silent. Democrats or worse, have, they did what? Sharma, uh, yes. we'll go ahead real quick. No, no, I'll let Dan finish his point, and then I'll... All right, Dan. So, yeah, Democrats have handled this questionably. However, the, the long-term politics of this are going to play out that the Republicans are going to have this albatross around their neck for at least this campaign cycle. I'm going to go out on a limb and say next five to ten years, thanks to their own answers to press without any of the facts. And Democrats are going to, yeah, look a little icky as far as those of us inside the beltway. And to some folks who are political observers who are going to say, you know, Democrats are just as guilty. Okay, you can say that, but... The, at, at the ballot box, the alienating women, Republicans have managed to just do the, that much more. And wait, wait, it's hold on, hold on. And it's Dan, not how it Dan, can play out. Dan, 
Dan, let me let me ask you this question. I want to ask you and Sharma this question. The 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 Democrats pulling out Dr. Ford and this latest accuser from Yale. I mean, the fact is, Dr. Ford was hugely hesitant to come forward. Uh, I've heard some say that she was possibly guilted or bullied into coming forward. Uh, I've heard, and, and now then, her life is never going to be the same. Her life is now ruined on a whole new level. Uh, just as this has destroyed the reputation of a solid, fair jurist, uh, and, and look at the damage it's done to his life, his wife, his kids. Uh, at what point do we stop? What point do we start realizing that when we do play politics? Now then, I want to go to the Republicans here in just a second. But Sharma and Dan, at what point do we stop uh, playing politics with this collateral damage and the bodies left behind like this? Sharma? If you're asking me, you need statesmen on both sides to step up. But an absence of that and an absence of both sides agreeing to handle things equitably, and I mean both sides, the – it no, is gonna, not an uncommon complaint gonna, that Democrats pull their punches and don't say things because they actually you know, think things out, and Republicans just say whatever, not the least of which is the current president of the United States that got away with saying all sorts of things, not the least of which was the lock-her-up chant that he still rolls out to rallies for a woman who is not being prosecuted. So... You can't – politics is, is a hard sport to play, and, it's, and, the, and the stakes are enormously high. People have literally killed for less. So is it unfortunate? <laughs> Absolutely. But people, unless both sides agree and adhere to the rules, it's unlikely to change. To be clear, I'm not advocating what has occurred. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with, with Dan. I mean, I think that the sort of – creating collateral damage for political ends long predates the Me Too movement. I mean, look, again, look at, you know, what happened to Professor Anita Hill, who still lives under the shadow of her accusations, and to Justice Thomas, who, you know, as apparently, you know, as, as recently as two or three years ago, was still thinking that he was owed an apology from Anita Hill and feels that this, you know, that the... Um, Hold it. The accusations leveled against him during his hold, confirmation hold hearing. And, oh, hold on. You know, I know I, Alan's going to go off. A, created a Alan's on his... Sharmila, on hold on. Sorry. Alan's going to go off in about two seconds. Alan, I'm going to come Fair to enough. your side in about two seconds. But Sharmila, finish your thought, and then I'll go to Alan. Yep. But, but what I was going to say is that, um, that I think, you know, to, to Dan's point earlier, the Republicans have played, you know, kind of quite well into the Me Too movement's hands in not only showing why, you know, women don't report sexual assault, but then the president this morning, when he went after, went after the second accuser, Debbie Ramirez, showing that second reason why women don't report, because when they do report, they often get blamed, right? Suddenly they are contributors and they are the instigators of violence against them. And that is just, a, it's like taking a trauma and then, you know, squaring, multiplying it by another trauma. 
So I think that, um, you know, I, I think that Dan hit the nail on the head in some ways. And I think that, unfortunately, the Republican Party and, you know, unless they handle the hearing with Dr. Ford with extreme sensitivity and extreme caution, they is can't. going a long way they in can't. terms of unwinding, in unwinding any progress that they may have made with female voters in the last but they can't. They can't do that, though. That's the problem. There's, they have to go down a road that – They have a choice. They just don't have the ability. No. Look, the idea of this being held with sensitive gloves, and Alan Moore, I'll go to you on this. I mean, as late as today, Chuck Grassley's staff on judiciary were talking about bringing in a female – uh, CSI or um, special victims prosecutor to ask the questions because it would look bad if eight white old white guys on judiciary asked her and basically came out and said, "Hey, you know, were you kind of a little tipsy? Do you do you not remember? Did you kind of ask for it? I mean, I mean and that's a no situation. Have confirmed that they did hire someone. Yeah, I mean, the thing you about heard, it is, what, what was that? It, no, what Sherman several... was confirming, what Sherman was confirming the fact is several outlets have confirmed what we've already oh, yeah, known. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought she made a judgment on it. I... No, but what I'm saying is, that, first of all, A, there's, not, there's no women on the majority side of judiciary. Wow. It's still eight old white guys. Second of all, if you have to get a woman, what's that? I think it's 11. I'm sorry, 11. You're right. 11 on the majority. 11 old white guys there, on the majority. There have been plenty of factual mistakes. I don't mean to pick on you, Justin. No, that, oh, okay. I'm sure you'll get to yours. But here's the thing, Alan. The fact that you have to go out and get a female special victims prosecutor, to ask, that is some, you can't get more misogynistic than that. That is absolutely ludicrous and sends a bad signal to women when you're trying to be and you're trying to get them back under the tent, Alan, I'm going to go to you. The, the Republicans have handled this piss poorly, and this is a horrible disaster for them coming into midterms. How do they fix it, or can they? Well, we're going to find out. Um, <laughs> they're wrestling and struggling, and last week I was, <laughs> my voice was, they need to find a person, a single person experienced, likely a woman, to ask these questions. Um, because you just don't want a free-for-all of those guys. You go back and look at the Saturday Night Live skit right, on, from, the, from the Thomas hearings. It was, it was they were unprepared, undisciplined, inexperienced, and they looked at um, – and, and uh, so I don't have any quarrel at all with them deciding – to, to to bring in an outsider. If you remember during Watergate, almost all the question, an enormous amount of the questioning, was done by by senior uh, staff questioners. One of whom was Fred Thompson, who uh, would later be a senator, who who was was counsel to uh, to Howard Baker. But but so it's not like it's unprecedented here. It's unusual. They ha- they can they have their reasons. They they chose. I thought it was ludicrous that. That, uh, that Dr. Ford's lawyers were saying, no, no outsider, only senators. It's like, 
<laughs> Excuse me. You don't get to call, call those shots. Is it a good idea? I think it's a good idea. But ask me next week. Ask me Thursday, <laughs> Thursday night. Ask me Friday uh, how it went. The, the Democrats, on the other hand, are, 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 would be wise in my judgment to do the same thing, but they're not going to do that. And we're going to see some interesting fireworks and they may well overplay their hand um, the way those people did last night in a, in a restaurant in downtown Washington, when they surrounded Ted Cruz and his wife and started yelling at them and disrupting the, the evening and the dinner and turning off a lot of people, um, Republicans and Democrats saying, wait, what, what were they doing? Um, it, there, there's a great risk here. Um, both sides have made some significant mistakes. Both sides are fully capable of screwing this up. So I think it's hard to say with any certainty well, you, how this wait, is wait, going wait, to play Alan, out Alan, in, the mid, in the midterms or the long term. Alan, your last statement of they are fully capable, you do not think that they've not fully screwed this pooch into oblivion well, already? Well, I think, I, <laughs> you know, screwed the pooch into oblivion? No. Have they both made serious blunders and mistakes? Yes. Um, but who's going to be the who's going to win in November on this issue? I don't know. I don't know what's going to come out. And and there was a comment made that Lindsey Graham said, "I don't care what anybody says. I'm going to vote for the guy." That's not what Lindsey Graham said. He said, "Barring any new information, from what I've heard, I'm going to vote for the guy." So we don't know if something different or new is going to come out. A and B, we don't know. Uh, how these people are going to come across these these two witnesses and maybe a third or fourth, depending. Um, and then, end of the day, let's talk about Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski because how they go, uh, so goes the Kavanaugh nomination. So oh, wait, 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 everybody's, wait, wait. Trying yeah, I mean, to, everybody's everybody's trying to play, uh, put on their kid gloves for dealing with with Dr. Ford necessarily so and appropriately so, but. They're also got their kid gloves on dealing with Senators Collins and Murkowski. Um, don't forget, don't forget, Amy, the, wait, wait a minute, don't forget Amy Klobuchar, don't, you know, on the Democratic side. And don't forget Jeff Flake as well, on the, still on the Republican yeah, side. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see Collins and Murkowski voting for Kavanaugh and Flake saying no. Um, so, but that's my judgment. You know, that's how I see it. I think, I think it's those two women who are the who are the keys here, I think, you know, and if everybody else is on board, it means that, but here's that there, the there wasn't some, wasn't new information or some kind of convincing case. There was, right. l- let me make one other comment and then I'll shut up. I would like to have seen the FBI get called in for a couple of days of questioning. So let me go on record as saying that. Let me also say though, because there's so much bad and inter- erroneous information about that issue out there. The Judiciary Committee, both the minority and the majority, have staff who are seasoned, experienced interrogators. When they met with, with Brett Kavanaugh uh, on Monday, they, it, was, it was last Monday, um, uh, he was sworn in. He gave uh, a deposition uh, uh, subject to... Uh, prosecution for perjury, perjury, which is a felony, um, they have an enormous amount of capability to do this, and that's what they're doing. The the Democrats so far have decided we're not going to participate in that. But meanwhile, they're fanning out all over the country with the help of 
every major newspaper and news outlet and all sorts of interest groups looking, 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 looking for more people. They, <laughs> there are thousands of people involved in this, not, you know, 20 FBI. <coughs> I'd like for the, for the sake of perception to have had the FBI uh, out there asking a few questions. I don't think it would have made a material difference, but it, it, it would have looked better. Um, believe me, there's an enormous amount of capacity and capability to go out there. And all the FBI does, they ask questions, write it down. They don't make judgments on it. And, and the staff of the committees, they, they, they look at it in a different way, gathering the information, well, what's it mean, Alan, what about this, what about that. And Alan, let's not forget that they also have the Office of Congressional Investigations that's available to them. And those are very seasoned investigators, some of whom came from the FBI. You know, as I say, you know, I think they, I think they would have been wise to, to do this. But people were saying that's what they did back, back with uh, the Thomas hearing and Need the Hill. The FBI went into the field for three days. The FBI went into the field during the Thomas process before Anita Hill was identified and named. There were rumors that there was somebody out there, so the FBI went and looked, found Anita Hill, probably with. We you know, were pointed in that direction, talked to her, and gave a report leaked by the Biden people. Her name came out, and she was forced right. to do what she didn't want to do, um, which is eerily uh, similar to what happened with, with Dr. Ford. She wanted to get this out there, presumably because she thought maybe it was a pattern. Somebody ought to know this. They should go take a look because maybe it's happened to other people. That's good, but I don't want to be out there. And then her name was leaked almost certainly by uh, – by Democratic, Democrats, staff, or members uh, of, of the, uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee, so right. be it. That's what happens. That's the risk that, that you take. But once Anita Hill was identified and her name came out, the FBI was done. Then it was entirely turned over to the Judi- Judiciary Committee and its own staff and investigators. So I just give that little, little reminder about how it worked last time, how it normally works, they should have sent the FBI out there just for the sake of perception, but I don't think it was going to make the kind of difference people talk about in terms of the information they gathered. Last thing, when Sharmila said that Clarence Thomas is looking for an apology, feels like he deserves one, he's never said it. I know the man, know him pretty well. I do not think that reflects his view. His wife, on her own volition, seven or eight years ago, put in a call to Anita Hill, left a voicemail that said, hey, don't you want to apologize? That was her. Believe me, she okay. was an independent actor. That was not him. All right. But, but Sharma, let me, throw this, let me throw this at you as the woman on the air today. If the original accusation comes out against Brett Kavanaugh, I have told everybody that is within earshot remotely associated with this process I have told their media folks, if Brett Kavanaugh gets on every network and says the following, I don't recall that incident happening that way. However, if if I did anything that made you feel uncomfortable, that seemed overtly aggressive, if I caused you any pain, I am hereby telling you right here, right now, I'm eternally sorry for that and for, that. for my actions. Does, does this go away 
if he says that to her, and and even if he said it privately to her, hey, look, I don't remember that way. Because again, the he said, she said, you know, I've heard a ton of Republicans bring up Tawala Brawley, which I don't want to bring up. That's a nightmare into itself. But does that go away if that happens, Sharmila? Um, you know, well, I, I agree with, with Ken that it's too late for that. And I think that that actually might bite Judge Kavanaugh in the butt a little bit because, right, he has been so adamant that, you know, just absolutely nothing happened. I wasn't even at that party. I never met this person. You know, this is complete of complete fabrication. So, you know, given the adamancy of his, I don't think that's a word, but given how adamant his denial has been, um, I, I don't think that, you know, walking it back to the level of like, oh, actually, maybe I was at that party. Maybe I was a little drunk. And no, no, but what I'm saying is, I don't think that that can hold water now. But, no, no, but what know, I'm saying is, actually, hold on, hold on, Charlotte. What I'm saying to you is, is does, he says that on day one, the second, the first accusation comes out. He says that on day one, he gets confirmed as opposed to now, which looks like I have a better chance of getting confirmed to the bench. Um, I mean, possibly it, you know, po- you know, again, we can't rewrite history, but it is possible that had he come out with a more conciliatory or more kind of nuanced statement of, you know, I don't recall this incident, but to the event, to the extent that it might, you know, it might have happened when I was in high school, I, I issue a fulsome apology. Perhaps you're right. We wouldn't be in the state that we're in, but let me, can I actually convey to you a, um, I think that creates a different problem. And I want to convey that to you in a conversation I had a few days ago with, you know, a group of women, friends of mine who are not necessarily political people, but, you know, had been, have been following this news and all kind of independently came to the same frustrating conclusion, especially when they heard, um, when they heard a lot of, you know, Republicans especially saying, oh, you know, these incredibly old allegations, are we really going to ruin this man's life and his career and his reputation over something that happened 35 years ago when he was still a teenager? And all of these women said, huh, isn't it convenient that Republicans say, oh, when a guy does something as a teenager, you know, we should forgive and excuse him and that shouldn't dominate the rest of his life. But if a woman, but the Republicans are also saying, if a woman gets pregnant as a teenager, she needs to live with the consequences of that, of that action and be beholden to it for the rest of her life. And that, that decision does ultimately define her for the rest of her life. And I think it's really interesting that, you know, all these apolitical women picked up on that nuance really quickly. And I think that, you know, that, you know, the Republicans sort of, excusing or this narrative excusing Judge Kavanaugh and you know, even had he issued that apology, the idea that, okay, had he apologized for bad behavior when he was 17, then you know, it's all water on the bridge. That's not lost on women. And I think that, again, compounds the problem the Republican Party is going to have with women for the very near future. There's also a different angle they could have. T- there's also a different angle they could have taken. Now, the, the, the second accusation creates new problems. But the first accusation and this is also and a Republican could choose to go down this route. There, there are some Republican reformists who believe this. The very legitimate question about the legal culpability of minors. And the, there is a coalition of folks, not necessarily exclusively on the right, but more so on the right than on the left, that basically wants to throw the, 
the whole kitchen sink at any kid that does anything wrong. And this is the Georgetown prep item with, with Brett Kavanaugh being a 17-year-old kid. Now, you could pose the question to Judge Kavanaugh what he believes as his legal philosophy of what the legal culpability is of a minor. That would be an interesting approach, and if a Republican did it, it could put Democrats in an interesting bind since there are uh, minors that have been prosecuted as adults um, that fall under the Democratic coalition header that we tend to think that, yeah, they should be given a second chance, and that shouldn't be how they're judged. Now, with the second claim, and the validity is still in question based on the, uh, based on the reporting by itself, not the actual claims of participants, just the reporting. That second claim now puts a different issue of whether or not this is actually his MO, or at least was his MO at the time. And there's some other stuff floating out there that says, that suggested, and I'm not going to go into it in detail, that suggested that Judge Kavanaugh has at least flirted with uh, other things that were a little suspect as, as far as women go. If all, all of that put together, that creates a different problem. But it could be handled delicately and legally in a wise way. Do I think it's going to happen? Absolutely not. But it could be done if somebody chose to look at this in a reasonable way um, on, both, on either the Democratic or Republican side. I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're going to get some lots of horrid details. Judge Kavanaugh is going to be asked about his drinking habits, which, based on his statements that he said on the Fox News interview, that uh, he, he didn't have any sexual relations with anyone or sex of any kind, and insert Bill Clinton line there, uh, until many years after the fact. Yeah, all of that's going to be a problem. So this is yeah. going to play out poorly. The short-term stuff is still icky for all sides, but the long-term effects, Republicans have just mishandled this outright. Sharmal, I want to go to you, I want to go to you, and and I I don't want to keep the focus on the lawyers here, but I do. Uh, I want to ask you yeah. one question: Should Michael Avenatti be disbarred, or should shouldn't he be called out for the the slime ball ambulance chaser that he is? So what's interesting about Michael Avenatti is that I don't agree with his tactics a lot of the time, but he is smart. He never makes an allegation that he can't actually back up. I think his, you know, his allegation, this pretty disgusting allegation about, you know, Judge Kavanaugh being involved in gang rapes or something to the like, you know, is is horrifying, you know, and. And tweeting it. And by the way, tweeting it without revealing the source makes him a slimeball on epic proportions. Look, he's been a slimeball before this allegation. Um, but, you know, I, and I can't recall the exact example where he made another outrageous claim, and it was eventually proved it, it was true. You know, the essential facts of what he had put out there weeks prior to the, you know, the media confirming it ended up being true. So I do think that, you know, his methods are absolutely horrific. But often, but he is, he's not so dumb that he wouldn't put something out there that's not based in some sort of fact. And whether or not, you know, when the actual fact behind his claim comes out, that, you know, they're not, you know, quote-unquote gang race, but maybe he, you know, the judge was involved in some sort of group activity where women felt threatened and unsafe. Um, 
I think that, you know, the fact that he's saying he has it is something that shouldn't be ignored by Republicans or, or the media, right? He shouldn't, he's actually proven that he usually has the goods to back up at least part of what he's saying. And so I don't think he, you know, to, your, to answer your direct question, no, I don't think he should be disbarred because he hasn't yet done anything worthy of disbarment. But at the same time, I don't think that his methods and his sensationalism help his cause or give him more legitimacy. Right. Um, round the horn and just quick one wait, wait, minute. A couple, right. couple of comments here. A couple of comments. Real, real quick, Alan. Go. Yep. So what's really tragic here in, in my mind, and, and I lived through the, the Thomas stuff very, very close and personal, is that, that generations of abuse of women have come together in the last year in the Me Too movement and some very high-profile uh, uh, disclosures, prosecutions, Bill Cosby, firings, uh, Harvey Weinstein and, and Charlie Rose and Matt Lauer and stuff. And, 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 and Kavanaugh now, there, but there's still an enormous pent-up anger, justifiable and correctly so, um, that, that's coming down on, on Kavanaugh now. Um, and then you've got some, some social issues, particularly the the, 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 the rights uh, to, to get an abortion where people are convinced they know what, what, uh, what Kavanaugh will do. And as a result, they will do anything uh, to stop him. Um, and that feeds in the, the, uh, some of this ugly behavior. Um, we tend even on this show to characterize some of the most outlandish quotes that, that people made. Um, the, the, the stupid idiotic joke about, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we didn't go to all of the stupid things that some of the Democrats have said, uh, Senator uh, Hirona, who wants all men to just shut up. Um, we haven't gotten to, to Cory Booker's comment that he wrote about when he was in college about groping a girl when he was 15 and then feeling badly about it. Um, but just, a, you know, sort of a reminder that stuff happens, nor have we talked about all the women who are in the media and elsewhere or reflecting and thinking about this, who are wives, who are sisters, and who are mothers of guys who will make some dumb moves that may or may not ruin their lives, or they may be subject to, although it's rare, um, mistaken identity or just out-and-out lies. So, I think that this is going to be helpful to Democrats net at the end of the day, um, but it's not slam dunk. And there are a bunch of cross currents here. I'm really interested to see what happens on Thursday and, and, uh, and thereafter. Um, and I just feel really sad about it all. Now, look, this is a, this is a sad situation going on in, uh, in here in DC, uh, nobody wins. Um, let me go around the horn real quick. Uh, does does Jack does Judge Kavanaugh get confirmed, Admiral Ken? Yes, I think he does. Sharmila, I honestly don't know. I think there's a lot of X factors, and if more women come out, um, or if you know the testimony goes, if if one party performs well on Thursday and one party does not. 
I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty right now, and I can't say for sure. Alan Moore. Yeah, it's a toss up. I'm with Sharmalai. You know, I have what I, I I hope he gets confirmed because I hope that he makes a believable, credible case. But I don't know, and there could be more. So Dan Lipner, I'm not going to predict. Uh, it, I'm, 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 I'm leaning no, but still with a toss-up, noting that both Jeff Flake and uh, the senator from uh, Tennessee uh, also have a bone to, to pick with the president that they might choose to just, uh, with some backing of evidence, could choose to operate. Well, that's true, too. Okay, I'm going to let that be the last word. Obviously, we'll be talking about this next Tuesday, which, by the way, brings us to our last comment. Started, a lot of people have said, hey, you know, the call-in show's been fun, but and we love we love the content, but audio quality, as you've heard over the past year, has been eh, and, but we still got our radio show out. Well, starting October 2nd, we have been, the show itself has been taken over by a media group called KF Media, and KF Media is taking us to the new level. Starting next Tuesday, we will be broadcasting live from our new home at Podcast Village in Georgetown, Washington, D.C., in our brand new digitally enhanced, professionally engineered studio. Uh, we're going to be making some additions to the team. Uh, we're going to be bringing in some new people. You're going to see us on camera for the first time in studio. Uh, there's going to be a whole new world opening up for us. We're going to start bringing in interviews again. And we've got a few important ones lined up. And you'll hear those names coming in the next couple of weeks. Make no mistake about it is. We are still going to be the best political talk show you've never heard of. But we may change that. We may be the best political talk show you've actually heard of in the next coming months. So uh, our website is still going to be the source of uh, the website is still going to be the primary source to get information. We've got new content coming up. That's going to be available on the website. You're also going to hear us on iHeartRadio and Spreaker. We're going back to Spreaker partially. We're not leaving Blog Talk Radio either. Uh, we're going to have content on both sites as well as every major podcast service, whether you use iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, TuneIn Radio, either or Pandora. We're on there too. You can still get us and you can still hear the same quality civil, well, mostly civil, discussion that we do here on Backroom Politics. So that being the case, you're also going to see a lot more digital activity from us. We're upping, we've been told we have to up our social media game. A lot more tweets, a lot more Facebook posts, uh, and even some new names associated with our tweeting. That being said, on behalf of our producer, Audrey Howerton, who is undisclosed location somewhere up in New York State, and our regulars, Alan Moore, Sharmila Chari, Dan Lipner, and Admiral Ken Carradine. I'm your host moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week for the beginning of Backroom Politics 2.0 from our brand new home at Podcast Village. But remember, you can still follow us on our website, backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on our Twitter handle, at Backroom Politics. Uh, get the RSS feed for from the cutting room floor, our daily recap of all things political. And you can also email me, justin at backroompolitics.org. If you have any fan mail or questions, 
bitches or gripes. But with that, we are going to see everybody in studio next, well, mostly everybody in studio next week. And we're going to kick this thing off to a new generation. Till then, have a great week, America. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics.